What do you love about being outside and active? I'm, I'm sure I've spent more time outdoors than in. That just feels like home. Enjoy what you can do because you never know what is around the corner. Just being outdoors in the fresh air, it just clears my mind. Fully immersed in nature is what brings me the most joy. Hello and welcome back to the Outside and Active podcast where this week we are rewilding our mind with Nick Goldsmith. From 2007 to 2018, Nick dedicated his life to serving his country, completing six operational deployments in some of the world's most hostile regions. Now as an international speaker, best-selling author and the co-founder of Hidden Valley Bushcraft, Nick works with and advises key government bodies and charities on delivering optimal programs to foster a mentality resilient society. A crucial part of his work is the globally recognized Woodland Warrior Program, now in its seventh year, which partners with esteemed organizations like Invictus Games, the Veterans Foundation and the Blue Light Card Foundation. The program supports armed forces and emergency service personnel's rehabilitation using nature's healing power. Without further ado, let's head straight into this week's episode with Nick Goldsmith. Nick, welcome to the Outside and Active podcast. Um, I'm going to kick off by offering you a piece of advice. And that piece of advice comes from previous podcast guest Isaac Kenyon, who's an, an adventurer and a trustee at Mind Charity. And his advice is, next time you go outdoors, take a notebook and write down how you feel. And his point behind this was really trying to find ways of connecting with nature and embracing embracing this connection with nature and using it as an opportunity to kind of embrace how you feel. What's your immediate reaction to that advice? I'm writing it down because I am the notebook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, the fact that, you know, that the expression, there's no school like the old school, uh, and I'm the headmaster. That, that, that expression always <laughs> makes me laugh from some movie I watched years ago. But, um, yeah, I am I am very keen ad, a very keen advocate of pen to paper. Um, you know, we've been, we've been writing things down for hundreds of thousands of years, and um, as long as I'm able to physically continue to do so, I'm going to continue to do so. That 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 follows many veins. It could be creative writing, it could be writing down recipes for things that I'm cooking, making, creating, crafting, the ingredients list, the materials list, whatever it is, or the or the steps and processes to making a bark basket or whatever it is. So I'm I'm a big big keen advocate of writing down and and scribbling. Um, I wouldn't call them diagrams, but pictorially, and, and again in a creative manner, drawing something out so that it's out of your head, it's on the paper, and then the next time you come to it, you go, "Ah, oh, yeah, I can see what I was thinking there." But I'm gonna before I just start la- launching into making something happen, I have to visualize it first, put it onto the paper for it to become real. Okay. Being is believing, so. Um, yeah, you know, the eyes need to see something first to, to fully believe it quite a lot of the time. That's where that expression comes from, very stoic phrase. Uh, and then, yeah, so pen to paper is, is is massive in my book. So Isaac is absolutely spot on. Yeah, because I thought about this afterwards of, hold on, I've got this I've, I've got this piece of technology with a notepad on it. Why can't I just write write it down in, on that piece of technology? And then it's quite literally what you said. It's actually, no, it's the there's something quite different about physically writing things down and having that... You know, not typing a or smashing a, a button. Physical mm. manifestation and implementation of 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 a dream becoming a vision, and then it, once it's on paper, right now, how do I make this a reality? How do I deliver on this? How do I then make this real? It, so, uh, yeah, part of that process for me. Yeah, because I said to him, like, people have always recommended journaling at the end of a day. If if you want to get, like you said physically see your emotions and put it out on paper and and that never resonated with me because I couldn't sit down at the end of the day and do that but actually going outside and doing it and being in the connection with nature uh, which is something we're going to talk about a a little bit later is very important so what a a good good way to start the conversation Um, and and just to continue it on there's a question that I ask to every single guest in the same way that we have the tradition of the advice and that's a purposefully vague question of what do you like about being outside and active what do I like? But it's got to me. For me, it's a state of mind that I fall into or that I become, um, and it's non-disruptive, uh, very much kind of like a flow state headspace. 
that's the word, headspace. It gives me the headspace I need. Um, there's lots of people at the moment on the internet waffling on about their incredible morning routines, none of which fit with average Joe, who's a four-year-old child you have to fight clothes onto to get to school in the morning, etc. I would love to be able to say I, I jump in a nice bath every single morning and I do 10,000 steps and I do my yoga and I do... The reality is I can walk the dog. I can get up every day and I can head off out the door as early as possible, uncaffeinated, uh, for about 90 minutes and I can walk the dog. And that takes a hell of a lot of discipline for me to just get out of bed and and and, and get get to that point of feeling that sunshine poking its way over the... Uh, over the ridge line here in the valley uh, and across the top of the hedgerows striking my face and it's just a lovely way to get your neurology online start to wake up in a very natural natural way and i mean really wake up obviously mm. i'm awake of sorts but um yeah close on and get out the door so to cover off those bars to entry to to get me in that position i tend to have my jeans by the bedside good to go so it's like swivel out T-shirt's already inside a jumper. That's, that's an all-in-one. I'm like, you know, coat on, lead. She doesn't need telling twice, my little Labrador Ready Tilly. To go. And we're going, and we're literally just trudging. But by the time I come back from the Headspace walk, I know exactly um, my best course of action for the day, how I'm going to try and tackle all those commitments, engagements, recording a podcast like this going and giving a talk jumping on an airplane to go somewhere or maybe running a course hedge laying dry stone walling leather work leather craft basket weaving whatever it is we're doing um there's a way and a means to make that day run as smooth as possible and so giving yourself the opportunity to do that in a nice sort of natural lead up is far better in my book than waking up to a harsh sounding alarm smashing bright lights on sticking loads of stimulant down your neck and just hitting the day at 100 miles an hour running on adrenaline those adrenals will only support you for so long uh until they, they start to become the, the bane of your life as i found out through uh, through having a, a high speed past life yeah and i'm looking forward to talking about that but a couple of things i wanted to just pick up on from what you just said one thing about laying the clothes out the night before is it's definitely something that uh is given advice given to runners is that nothing no big bigger motivation than your stuff's already on the floor last night you was already put that stuff out ready to go for that walk or that run it it, is no excuse there and the other thing that you kind of touched on a couple of times is um caffeinated uncaffeinated um getting out and doing that what what's so important about that so essentially for me, uh, as a as a as somebody who um, in a past life as a as a Royal Marine had quite a high speed propensity to be uh, all or nothing, black or white, um, you know, full, full, you know, sort of that kind of very much on that sort of boom bust cycle where uh, it, you're constantly ready to go, constantly pet, anticipation at all levels, concurrent activity, all these things that are drummed into you and conditioned into you. Uh, so that at a moment's notice, you can stand up, react, go somewhere, deliver at 100 miles per hour, high-performance individual. When the whistle blows, stop, and then it's hurry up and wait. And then it's go, and then you go again, and you live this this lifestyle, which is um, incredibly unnatural. Anyone who's a shift worker watching this, any sort of police, ambulance, fire service, uh, NHS workers, anyone who's a shift worker, it doesn't matter what you do, actually, um, will know about that sort of you end up in a state where you're living between doing the thing and what you're actually doing is when you're doing the thing that's when you're living in your mind and the rest of it's just waiting to go and so it makes it very tricky to have a family life and and to to fit things in where you're supposed to be in a calm kind of parasympathetic soothe rest and digest state because you're at a moment's notice that sympathetic go time is going to kick in and so caffeine for me to answer your question uh very much represents that high performing side of me from yesteryear so as soon as the black coffee starts going in you know it could easily consume three coffees in the morning just to function for the four-year-old uh, <laughs> a borderline feral young young man who's who's just 
doing so well. We're really, really pleased with him. Um, you know, he's four, still doesn't have an iPad, hasn't had, hasn't had any of that. There's my phone. Not teaching anyone to parent. I'm not, you know, doing doing any parenting advice here. But what I'm saying is we've chosen to do the old school hard yards and always play a game, sing a song, whatever it is. And it is hard. <laughs> so hard. I can imagine. Uh, but worth it because when I look at how confident and competent he is now, even at four, and his he's yearning to be part of the family unit and to and to do the jobs with daddy. And so we he cleans the wood burner out in the morning while I then carve some new feather sticks with him. And we're at that point now where he's holding my hands and he's starting to mimic the motions. He'll be far better as 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 maybe proficient as I am with a knife. He'll be better than me. Uh, and and soon. With those you know, if, skills if at an start, early age. If he's starting that early, yeah, he'll be he'll be brilliant. Whatever he goes on to do, he could very well become a software computer programmer, and that's fine. But he'll always have a really good standpoint anchored in his outdoor knowledge and experience. That fast-paced lifestyle that you spoke about, the Royal Marines, where and when was the entry point for you to that lifestyle? 2007, having just fallen short of making a professional rugby career so i was craving high performance teams um i'd got as far as being a sort of a county rugby captain a couple of times that that, that was kind of a good accolade and then going on to college lots and lots of lads would get picked up for quins and places like that and it, it didn't happen for me so you know that was a bit of a knock um and then i had a conversation with my cousin mums mums are good at this so my mum noticed that i was a bit glum about the whole thing and she yeah. could see that were progressing on etc and um i think in my third year i was i was kind of half in half out college and and having to make a new plan and we had a we had a brilliant young player came into our team and mr joe marler you may know (laughs) yeah so so i was playing against dylan hartley on a weekly basis i was in that sort of gene pool group of lads in that mix and then suddenly i wasn't so Went to see a cousin who'd done five years in the Corps, earned his Green Beret, and was leaving and going into the world of police, where he still is today, if he's listening. Hello, James. And um, and it was just the inspiration I needed. As, as a young man, needing that sort of next level of imprinting, I think I already knew in my heart I wasn't going to follow my dad's lineage of growing into Goldsmith Motors, the mechanic workshop, and everything that he had created with his brother. Um, so that was that's okay. And he was totally cool with that. Um, so I think they knew that I wasn't going to go that route. I did pick up bricklaying. I did construction. I became a bricklayer for three years because the Royal Marines wouldn't touch me while I had a knee up. I'd blown up a knee playing rugby as well. So, um, that was a bit tricky. So I had to grin and bear and do that long-term gratification thing where I, I ran to site eight miles. I laid bricks I then ran home again with my steel toe caps on my my trowel in my bag, and uh, I was absolutely that was my only option was to pass that course and get in, because every day I was doing on building site, regurgitating the same conversations, mm-hmm. listening to, laying to the line, or more often than not being the sort of uh, the late being treated as the labourer because as the new boy you still had to earn your right into the into the brick gang to be taken taken seriously by anyone. Um, so I didn't really get off the ground in that respect. But yeah, the core gave me everything I was looking for, that kind of high performance, team stuff, um, options of growing into leadership roles and all that kind of weird and wonderful, wacky malarkey that you see uh, on the recruitment adverts where people are running around, uh, jumping out of aeroplanes, skiing, skidooing, scuba diving. All of, all of it. Kicking doors, explosions, <laughs> out of helicopters, you name it, all that good stuff. Did you, and so it just ticked a massive box for me. Did your experience, I was, well, was going to say, did your, your experience with sport and rugby at a young age help you? Did you learn any skills from that to take forward into into that, that, that lifestyle, team building, and maybe some leadership elements as well? 100% yes. Being, so as much as it's about being able to operate independently in the Royal Marines uh, and at reach and, you know, kind of that above and beyond piece, that elitism, physicality-wise, 
Um, certainly wasn't a bad thing coming from a rugby background, used to being cold, wet, mud, etc. cetera, um, to a degree. <laughs> <laughs> Those Sunday mornings, yeah. <laughs> no, no, nobody, nobody makes it, nobody breezes through Limpstone Commando Training Centre. So there were always things I was going to have to struggle with. Um, equally, the team piece, it is all about being a team player. Every man is a link man. If you don't pass on a vital piece of information at the right time. People's lives depend on it at the other end. So everything that's being passed to you, you pass on, you pass down, you learn the job above, you learn the job below. Um, because when you get out there and you're doing this stuff for real, it literally is the man to the left and right of you, regardless of the politics, regardless of why you're there, regardless of who sent you or all that stuff, all that matters in that moment, in that time is the job. And if anyone from the British Armed Forces is listening to this, they will certainly know that half the time you are um, up against it in terms of kit and equipment uh, and, and capability, and you're almost always having to borrow something from some other force from there or just make it work, you know, find a way. And that's that's something that we're incredibly good at as Brits, I think, is being very plucky and resilient, uh, and it's it's well documented now, so I won't, I won't spin you any stories, but many, many times there are not enough of us to do what it is that we're supposed to go and do. But listen, that is essentially the role of, of the commando, isn't it? Small small groups behind the lines or in the lines, conducting activity, um, disrupting, uh, preventing the enemy from being able to move, from being able to do anything, and, uh, you know, taking on taking on tasks and roles which, which may involve the... the um, how do I say this without high value targets, all sorts yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Taking play is kind of like key pieces of the puzzle in the bigger picture. Uh, and that's very much our role. So we don't always get the, always necessarily get the flashiest jobs. I'd say that, you know, that's part and parcel of going into selection and going into a tier one unit and then going into that world is you, you are going to get the, the sort of juiciest best things to take on and quite often the stuff that's really really quite unpalatable and yeah we don't fancy that and all the rest of it rangers commandos paratroopers always end up taking on these kind of secondary tasks or roles which are quite frankly almost every time you go out the door everyone's joking and that dark humor it's up certain death and uh and yeah you know the the odds are not always as favorable um and maybe less than that but we get it done yeah, I was listening to an interview this morning of you talking about the commando training and it being quite an intense selection period. Um, what was your experience of that period of time? And also, what does that teach you? You're seeing people drop off. You're seeing, you, you know, pushing yourself through certain physical and mental limits as well. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, I understand that, um, you know, we're now into the future commando force. And so things have remodeled. We're now working in 12-man teams and, and rather than 28 man troops into sections of eight the whole model has changed to a degree to meet today's uh, requirements and threat and uh as i was listening to um uh one of the four-star generals in the corps talking about it talking about look it doesn't take away anything that, that our generation did um and in fact we were more than able to to do the task that we were given but at each point you know it starts to move, the needle moves, and you've got to move with the needle as a, as a force, as a kind of a culture inside of that. So for me at that time, 2007, uh, Afghanistan was well underway. Iraq had been raging for a long time. 2004 was particularly juicy in Iraq with the sort of Alamara and stuff like that. I wasn't involved in that. I was watching it on the news thinking, oh, my God, mm-hmm. uh, as a bit of a younger man. But I was 21 when I joined, and so... By the time I got through all the selection process, I think I started the selection process at 20, um, birthday in January. And by the time it took, just took so long to get through the, um, uh, whether it was my recruitment office or not, I don't know, the, the medical, the all the preliminary stuff. And at every point, they're just shaving people off. People didn't even realize they're mildly colorblind. No, you know, wow. uh, no. People like me who'd had a knee op had to wait so many years to be clear of it and back to sport. And then obviously, you know, you pass the physical test or you don't. So you have the physical application test you pass and then you go down to Limpstone Commando for what was at the time PRMC, Potential Royal Marine Commander Corps. So you, you got thrashed for a week. 
Um, and as hard as I thought I trained, uh, and as well as I did on that initial week, and I, I sort of came top on that, um, within a couple of weeks, I was I was on my knees at Limpstone like everybody else. So there were 67 of us who started, who'd, who'd got as far as beginning that process, and there were 11 of us uh, left on the parade square who'd gone through as an original in, in within one passing of everything, yeah. we're lucky enough to get without injury. On the parade square, there were other people I passed out with who had been, some of them had been waiting a year to pass out of Commando Training Centre because they had the most horrific injuries that they'd had to overcome. They had not given up. Uh, and so they'd fallen into our troop to do just that particular bit from week 21 or from week 28 or from week 30 or whatever it was, you know, the Commando tests. So, but there were 11 of us from 67. So that kind of gives you an idea of the, the wow. numbers. And that's 67 very bright, articulate, highly athletic, driven individuals. But as you say, it's just the mind games are horrendous. When you're in a tank full of seawater at three o'clock in the morning and they're shouting at you with a traffic cone and, and sort of saying, you know, um, look, this isn't going to end until three of you give up. It's just all in there. And, and all of that has to prepare you for going and serving in some of the most hostile places around the world. And, and I can of kind of understand when you're being prepared for that, that they have to put you through quite a lot of mental and physical you know, strain to prepare you for going and serving those parts of the world. But what effect does that then have? I mean, how long are you serving for and kind of bring it towards the end of your service of when, um, when you were medically discharged? How much of a part does, you know, the experiences of serving in that some of those hostile places in the world have an effect on the way that actually you eventually left the Royal Marines? Entirely, entirely uh, service attributed is, is as the paperwork reads. Um, so my first tour uh, saw everything from having to fix bayonets to danger close artillery coming in less than 100 metres in front of us, these great big 105 artillery shells, uh, all sorts of very pointy, scary, loud, ears ringing, horrendous stuff. Uh, you know, the smell of all the, uh, the coral diet from all the automatic weapons, this, the feelings of things going bang. So, so even if you've got a 500 pounder coming in and you're maybe two, 300 meters back and you're in a ditch, just that shockwave, um, and the next time you're at a fireworks display and you feel those kind of air bombs going off, that air displacement, you feel that bass in your chest. Oh, it's just a, yeah, an instant link back to that. Christ, you know, um, I think I might die feeling. Wow. So, but, but courage is being scared and going and doing it anyway. Uh, and, and, and being to the point, to a point fearless because, you know, fear and excitement come from the same part of the brain. So if you could master it in the moment, uh, irrespective of how it affects you later down the line, and none of us really know that, um, then that's fine. But there definitely comes a point where you can only do so much stuff before it starts to catch up with you. Now, I had a weird and wonderful eclectic ride where I'd come back from that tour uh, and I started drinking. Um, it was particularly violent, kinetic tour. There were a lot of deaths, and I'd been injured, uh, and I'd been walking wounded, so I had a uh, knee reconstruction surgery. And the moment I was strong enough, uh, I was put to task carrying coffins for the lads who were left on the tour. So that was probably a, a poor move by leadership at the time. Not really well thought through at all, uh, if I'm deadly honest. And bearing in mind, I haven't even spoken to a padre or anyone about, you know, how I found any of this. Uh, there was very little in the, in terms of the welfare system back in. 0708 yeah. and if they, and we were certainly weren't seeing it with four or five commando uh certainly not a whiskey company so i then carried coffins um and did repatriation services whether it was sort of doing the firing party stuff or whether it was directly carrying the coffin carrying them the lads off of uh, linum when they were coming in for the repats and then again placing them in the rest final place of rest um on the funerals and it was extremely harrowing process to see looking into a set of mother's eyes etc it's properly hardcore um 
And then between tour number one and tour number two, I was right place, wrong time to save a young lady's life in a pub toilet, which I've I've written um, much of this kind of stuff in in my book, first book plug, Rewild Your Mind. Um, and uh, in the first 13 pages, I've covered off things like that. So I've managed to save her life um, using the, the med training I had at, at the time, which was... Um, towards dealing with catastrophic bleeds so this was something happening at home on leave in a total accident in a pub so i was uh, i was able to she, she's a single leg amputee to this day um and still suffering with with pain and with all sorts of stuff so you know that that journey hasn't finished for her um and i guess for me to a degree certainly hasn't i, I trudged home that night absolutely covered in blood wow uh, it was pretty severe it was touch and go she was placed in a chemically induced uh, coma was in hypovolemic shock she'd lost half the blood in her body um yeah it's pretty violent things so severing a femoral artery is a, is a violent thing um and then i did tours number two and three uh and at this point i was working alongside and in direct support of a tier one unit um down in pool so that's the boat service and then uh, from there on in i w- got a willy wonka's golden ticket so I was down there in a purely sort of logistical role, taking a bit of a break from the pointy stuff. Uh, and uh, certain entities discovered that I, um, native fluent French speaker, amongst some other bits and pieces, um, which kind of put me in the right place at the right time to go and do some very unorthodox um, soldering, something that I never thought I would have would have put myself into or had a go at or even gone and done any selection process for. So... But then when it did a couple of jobs in that respect, um, that also left its own sort of level of flavour and issues surrounding personal security. So we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd have Blue Tack over the camera on the phone and on the speaker, and I'd be extremely aware of uh, of my surroundings and uh, where I'm going and whether I'm being followed to and from places and all sorts of classic paranoia type stuff. And then I went and did a final Afghan tour, but not before my mum had cancer, and we went through that with her. She's still with us, um, but it was it was quite quite the process. She did radio, chemo, uh, it was breast cancer, so surgeries, and then that last tour was seven months long with no R and R, and it was the straw that broke the camel's back. So I came back, was diagnosed with by that point with all these layers, uh, complex post traumatic stress disorder, uh, and so yeah, that was incredibly hard. But what I did have was a good firm anchoring. Um, in my love, my innate love for the outdoors. Having grown up in East Sussex in the forest, I was either playing rugby or in the off-season messing around in the forest. So, you know, everything from building dens, making fires, all that kind of good stuff, disappearing on my uh, on my BMX for days at an end. In the time before social, uh, social media and uh, mobile phones, and so going off and making adventures, coming home with no skin on your knees, all that... <laughs> Um, that people talk about and that kids today can probably only dream about, which is half reality. But what I want, to, I, what I want to do is try and inspire the next generation to take up the mantle, um, to get back into the outdoors, to find that level of headspace and peace between the busy, chaotic lives that we lead. You don't have to have been a high-speed commando jumping out helos and doing that stuff. You could be absolutely anyone and still massively benefit from connecting. Because the biggest thing I hear around the campfire is people say, I'm lost, I don't know where I'm supposed to be, I don't know what I'm supposed to be. It all goes back to this theme of connection and this feeling of disconnection. And it's like, well, how do I get connected? Start with doing the things that you were designed to do. 300,000 years ago, we were collecting firewood, making cordage to make nets, to catch fish to do stuff, to boil water, to make it safe to drink, to make bread. To... You, you, trans, you, you transitioned us very nicely to exactly what I wanted to talk about. Because, and, and thank you for sharing all of that. It gives a full context and a full picture of, of, of kind of where you are today. And it's a, in, in five minutes or so, you listed off a lot of experiences and stressful situations that are more than people, the average person would experience in in a lifetime and it kind of paints a picture as to why you were discharged and left but I kind of want you to fill in some of the gaps of the 
maybe the months or years afterwards because you, or months afterwards, you purchased Woodland in 2012 and began teaching family and friends those outdoor skills that you spoke about. I mean, what sort of time frame are we thinking about here and what was the mindset when you started doing this? 2014, 2014. came off the diagnosed. Bureaucratic error from the unit I was serving with and the unit that's supposed to pick me up, the recovery centre, paperwork failure, call it what you want. Eight months I was left on leave at my lowest point and I had that woodland to fall back on. I had a place to go every day away from the rest of the world to light a fire, to sit there, to make my coffee, stroke the dog. <laughs> oh, no, the dog wasn't even with me at that point. So she came after. So, yeah, so go down. I was on my own talking to myself as if that's not bad enough. Dangerous. The scariest <laughs> place any of us can be is inside our own minds. So, yeah, I distinctly remember. Here's one. So I distinctly remember clearing the the orchard and having ruminating arguments from that last particular tour, from that last tour, and just always coming to the same outcome, the same horrendous, cataclysmic, catastrophic outcome. It was a really, really poor mental state to be in, in terms of just very dark. And so every time I ran the equation, it would always end up in the worst case scenario. And uh, for about nine hours, I just cleared this whole bed of brambles back and my arms were cut to bits and was just working like a very manic behavior. Um, but look, it gave me somewhere to be, something to be doing and something that kept me on the straight and narrow. That Perfect. area is an orchard. It's got green gauges, it's got plums, it's got Ida reds, it's got cider apples, it's got dessert apples, it's got everything. And it now falls under the uh, the label of the Woodland Moria program. So I'm hugely proud of having been able to repurpose those early, very humbling experiences in the woodland as I, as I sort of, ma in managing the unruly woodland that hadn't been touched for 40, 50 years, I was was taking care of myself in a way i was kind of finding a way through the darkness um and in december when i finally reached out so just before 15 i reached out uh at my lowest point pretty much flipping the coin type stuff to the psych nurse who diagnosed me the one person i trusted didn't trust anyone else and um a load of messages all got cc'd in to and fro from the royal navy and all sorts of stuff and balloons were going up everywhere and oh my god why haven't we sorted this and and so I was invited to go back down to the base. But you have to understand at this point, I'm now feral. So not only did I come back from the tour with my hair out here, big handlebar moustache, <laughs> no longer gave a monkeys about rank or any of that stuff. It was really quite anti-authoritarian at this stage because there's this huge letdown feeling. Of course. Um, but I did the yards. I did what I was supposed to do, they, you know, and as an asset, they encouraged me to go over the road and engage with mental health services. So I started to do uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And I started to do the CBT. I then went and self-sourced NLP and just continued to just try to better the situation I'd found myself in. But albeit the whole way through, I had the support and scaffold of my project in the woods and what I was doing there. And I had a purpose to be planting trees hedge laying creating paths laying down wood chip you know all the things that then led on to becoming what people know today as hidden valley bushcraft um and later the woodland warrior program which is now my this is now me providing a service that wasn't there for me at the time that i had to kind of work out myself albeit unhealthily with a bottle of rum and you know and all sorts of unhealthy coping mechanisms that Woodland Warrior program now exists and has done for like seven years for veterans emergency services to uh, who are going through transition to find a way to right themselves, get back on track and stay in service. Or for those who are definitely going to be leaving, as I said, and uh, all those who've left 20, 30 years ago and have had zero love ever since. So they can come back into, into the fold, uh, find their identity as a veteran, you know, enjoy, enjoy, Enjoy the banter, the bruise, the wets, the uh, time around the campfire, making things, doing things in a very natural format, things we've done for hundreds of thousands of years, as I said. Mm. Um, food, fire, shelter, water, navigation, all around the kind of core principles, but with a strong conservation uh, edge. 
and conservation's a two-part thing, right? It's conserving people as well as wildlife habitat uh, and, and um, being a local asset and being recognised on a global scale and all that other ego stuff. Two, so, yeah. Yeah, two questions picking up from what you've just said. Quickly, for people that might not know, um, you just kind of tell us what CBT and it was NLB, the... the LP, Neuro Linguistic Programme. So uh, if you're struggling with conventional therapies and you want to try and make some progress on something. So for me in particular, I had, a, I had an image I couldn't get out of my mind. It's like burned into my retinas. It's a particular, particular thing. Uh, and um, so I went and did some NLP and uh, sat down with a therapist chap and he got me to imagine myself in a cinema. Now, I'd worked at a cinema for a short period of time in my past life. So I could tell you about the, the red velvet feeling chairs with the little kind of white ivory chair numbers on yeah. there and you know is are the screen is the screen open or closed o- open the curtains okay imagine the patrol playing out on the on the screen and you go through this process and you basically end up fishing out a really fond childhood memory and placing that over the top of the uh, of the horrendous image and then what happens is over time is every time you try and f- that message that, that image tries to fire into your intrusive memory you it's instantly the other the other like a tape recorder the other happy childhood memory kicks in over the top of it which is really really cool so it's just another way to make a little bit of progress it all uses that same core mechanism of duality where you've got two parts of the brain working at the same time and you're working on stuff that's held in your chimp your paleocortex the kind of raw fight flight stuff yeah kind of your your prefrontal cortex or your neocortex your pfc and that data uplink is going up from where it's being stored raw and it can't do anything other than go up into here which is like a super cute computer that can put things away smells sounds tastes and link files to other files you move forward with it i do a rather crude demonstration around a campfire but it makes a lot of sense around a campfire <laughs> people sit there going, oh that's why i get it <laughs> So's birthday party, I had too many glasses of wine and then I don't remember anything. And then in the morning I had this feeling of dread and everyone was saying, you need to apologise to David and Sandra. <laughs> what happened? Do you not remember getting naked? Oh, God. <laughs> I see what you mean. Um, and that, that Woodland Warrior programme, something that you kind of inherently did yourself and had that to fall back on, as in going in and having that orchard and that space to be able to go and create and blah, blah. But the Woodward Warrior program is something that you provide now for people coming out of the military to be able to have yes. that experience that maybe wouldn't have been able to fall back on that that you were able to. It's entirely, it's a very unique creature and we are not scared to have, the conversations go where the conversations go around a campfire and I think there's not much I haven't dealt with now in the way of all heard. Um uh, everything from casual references to cannibalism all the way through to um, the highest ranking soldiers you can imagine struggling with their inner childhood selves who were sent away at boarding school under the age of 10 into a dorm full of other boys. And then there's this regurgitating thing that's been going on in them for years. And it's coming to the fore now because they're now fathers and they're starting to realize that now's time to send johnny away and it's like well i don't really want to send him away because actually how did that make me really feel and and there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpack there what's really good is i don't run that initial weekend on my own i have other people to work with um and then i get my supervision from a uh, a very brilliant man uh, he's got 30 years in the nhs working at a very high level in, in psychology so i got somewhere to go with that but i use the skills of the outdoors as the vessel in which to gently have these conversations and you 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 do have to be very very gentle Um, and it's not about getting people to unpack sometimes they just start doing that and you've got to find a way to kind of gently control and ebb that flow and uh as they're unpacking but um it is a very niche uh thing i would say um and as i said essentially we're there on a peer-to-peer non-clinical bushcraft weekend but people have got stuff that needs to be heard. So, so as and when, if it's in a group setting or I'm peeling someone off to one side to have a chat, whatever it is, um, we work with it. So, yeah, so after seven or eight years of doing that now, um, we're, we're fairly adept at, uh, 
at working with people. What is lovely is that there's been buy-in from the same recovery centres that I spent time in um, and uh, the, the Army um, rolling recovery um, course down at Tedworth has been have been to see us a few times. We've done some spoon carving. We've done all sorts of different elements. And again, all as the vehicle in which to to get people in the right headspace to prepare themselves to go out into the world of Civvy Street and to, to realise that this thousand-year model that's been bestowed upon you, which everybody sees as the kind of um, pinnacle of, of perhaps high-performance um, behaviour, actually isn't sometimes. There are elements inside of that you can cherry-pick out, which are very good, but a system that's been pred- like predated apart like born of a thousand years worth of warfare people living dying oh we won't do that we'll now do it this way and it's very very streamlined and it's very efficient and and you know and it's in britain we are we are brilliant for our sort of military doctrine and stuff it's very good um but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in the world of business yeah. or make a very good entrepreneur so it's picking out the transferable bits and it's helping them to see the wood through the trees and and the kind of where they where they can go with this stuff and to uh, to empower them ultimately to to give themselves permission to make a change. I describe it as it's not about showing the horse where the water is and saying well, we've got to go and drink this water. It's about letting the horse realise it's thirsty in the first place, how thirsty it is, and then when it's ready, it'll come back to you and say, okay, where do I go? How do I get help with? whatever it is, and we'll pass them on to talking therapies and to other places, etc. But more often than not, we end up with people who won't come forward in a conventional sense, don't want to speak to a counsellor or anyone else, and quite happy to go on a bushcraft course. <laughs> Are there some fundamental wildlife skills that you think everyone should know? Huge. Um, Recognising your trees. Just as a Briton living in this band of the Northern Hemisphere, where we get this wild, wonderful weather, for which we all like to use terms like bad weather. It's just weather. You know, the old thing about poor clothing. Um, and understanding, you know, kind of your sort of 10, 15 trees. I'm looking out the window right now at a beautiful silver birch. And I know it's technically non-native to this particular part of the world, but it's a pioneer species. It does well in every soil. Um, it contains betulum oils, which I can peel the bark off and use to start fire. I could also tap it in the spring months, certainly, to get good, clean water out with a, a nice, decent level of sucrose content to it, so I can drink that purified water straight from the tree. I can make uh, various alcoholic substances using the uh, the leaves. I can use for flavouring things, beech noyu. I can um, carve it. I can burn it. I can do fire by friction with it. I can just the list goes on, right? So it's one tree. I know that at the base of it, I'm likely to find um, certain types of mushrooms. Um, birch, birch, birch belit. There you go, the birch belit. Um, and it's just understanding the relationship between the trees, the landscape, and how everything else is. It's all connected. So if you understand your trees, quite often you'll understand the flora and fauna that grow in that area, and you'll also understand the fungus that grows in that area, and you'll also understand all the things that we've done and interacted with that's where the ethnobotany comes in the study of trees plants flowers the chemical constituents and then relationship to us as humans which is the bit i'm fascinated with because we've been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years and it's only now in the last kind of hundred years it feels like it's just go and ask anyone in the street or ask your neighbor what's that over there don't know we're disconnected we don't have that and yet we've never been more connected apparently (laughs) it's 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 interesting but the connection you seek is all around you it's just about stepping outside so things like learning to meet, read the tracks in the mud when you're going out for a walk oh who's been through here this morning then okay so i see two bicycles i see oh i recognize that pattern that's a uh, speed cross three that's a uh, so-and-so and he's got quite a lanky gait and he turns in on his toe and i can see that that's you start to get to know characters and people by the constant things that are left behind you know uh how's that dog with a missing uh, missing claw i've seen him down the pub so he's been for a walk this morning you know get to know everyone and everything around you um there's a feeling of safety and security from having that knowledge um foraging do i need to go on i mean now yeah. we sit 
I go, hot water, Amazon will bring me everything. Just eat whatever it is. Looking at the world through a letterbox, not actually going to it or do anything. Because it's all here. Convenience. Convenience is winning and it's constantly going that way. I was listening to another podcast talking about convenience. Is that At what point does it stop? At what point does it, you know, just actually we need to, as humans, we need to put ourselves through difficult times and we need to have connection and we need to have some abrasion to be able to grow and if with this convenience on our doorstep quite literally like you said with delivery and looking through that looking glass it's you know we're going to lose touch with that and that's why like you said connection with nature is is so important and there's a couple of things i want to touch on before we finish obviously the book which you touched on earlier rewind uh, rewild your mind how did this come about and what is rewild your mind well, I mean, I've written in the back here, reset, recharge, rewild. So when you're when your base starting line is that everybody's saying that they're living this, they're lost, don't know what they are, it's that disconnection. So in seeking connection and connection with ourselves, the landscape that we find ourselves in, um, et cetera, and that kind of higher level of connection, um, when we when we kind of think about that, and I wanted a title for this, I was thinking, what is it I'm trying to do? What do I help people to do? And uh, a little while ago, done various elements of tv and radio over the last couple of years and we were on a show and we were doing something with Aaron brady uh, baroness brady yeah and she asked me a poignant question and i don't think it made the final edit but i still remember the question and i still remember the way i answered on the fly not prepared just performed um she said what is it that you do for people what is it what service do you provide and I thought, right, this has got to be short as hell. This has got to be like snappy. It's got to be, we give people tribe. And that seems to be what's missing. It's great that you're part of a WhatsApp group and the memes and gifts are flowing, but it's still not quite bumping shoulders with someone, doing a task, achieving something together, talking, sharing food. It's not that. It's far from that. It's a two-second laugh, short-term gratification, funny meme, move on. So we give people tribe. We, we take groups of disconnected individuals out to the woods. We connect them. They become their own tribe. And then they become part of the wider thing that is the Woodland Warrior Program. And through all the courses we run through Hidden Valley Bushcraft, it's all about getting people to play nicely with one another and to see that we've all got stuff going on and to kind of help promote and grow EQ, EQ over IQ, so emotional intelligence, get people to understand that it's those soft skills that go further in the world of in the world of work. We could use all the sciencey stuff. We could say, oh, it's about isopraximal neuroresonance. It's about, you know, we could we could use all that stuff. It's about mirroring and idiosyncrasies and all that kind of um, non-verbal communication and behavioralistic stuff and gesticulation and talking with our hands. It is about all that, but it's about more than that. It's about doing that in the right place. You don't take a poorly fish and put it in dirty water. You put it in the cleanest water it can be in for your fish to make a turnaround. That's what ha- I believe that's what's happened with me. So I'm not saying that the talking therapies didn't work. They did to a degree. They're pretty invasive and pretty horrific. And mm. I had to relive a whole stuff. And I was retching in a retching in a bin 10 years after the event at the smell of claret, uh, blood and, and reliving that stuff. But um, actually... Actually, it was is the fact that I got a break every single weekend. I went straight back into that woodland. And before you knew it, I was asking to have Mondays off and Fridays off, spending longer and longer periods of time doing more of what felt right, less of what didn't. And that's how I, I started to divorce the force, break free, stop wearing uniform, grow a bit with beard, be a bit rebellious, so the, and started to make that trend. The penultimate... Th- question i wanted to ask was around leadership because leadership is so important in family in work in sport in anyone that listening there will be elements of times where they need to be a leader and my question was going to be around can you build a leader or are people inherently leaders i think that there is a natural cloth that we're cut from i think when you think about this nature or nurture is your question um you can by nature be a natural born leader but you only get to see that when things start going really wrong and it's very hard to replicate those type of events to really see what people do when they're under the pump 
I mean, I'm talking you're out for a walk and a car crash happens right in front of you. Do you get your mobile phone out, start filming? Do you run forward and offer assistance? Do you run forward and offer assistance whilst typing in 999? Do you start doing the full handover to authorities, get in behind somebody, do a C-spine consideration? Do you have that kind of drive to, even though you're not necessarily 100% sure what you're doing, to just go and to do the right thing at the right time based on what's in front of you? Also be able to stand back and maybe delegate and get other people to assist you um, and have that kind of critical thinking, that, that upper element. You know, there's lots of different models inside of leadership. People say that dialectic thinking is the way forward, and that's what makes a successful, for instance, Royal Marine Commando, um, being able to, to juggle big big subject matter um, with, with huge outcomes. And even though that outcome might not be in your favour, still be able to do the right thing at the right time. I mean, that's a, that's a quality in itself. So there's lots of models of leadership. Sometimes people are bestowed upon them a level of leadership, which they're not naturally predisposed to, to, to take up. And so what you end up with is someone who's very good at being a manager and delegating away problems and liabilities. That just doesn't make them a leader. I believe a leader is somebody who recognizes within their own team and sees the kind of entrepreneurialistic spark or someone who's able to perform under duress and, and think and, and recognize elements of themselves inside of that and then bring them through and step aside. Understand when it's time to decide. Bring in homegrown leaders and step aside. That's an important thing for me. Uh, too many times we see the wrong people getting promoted in this life and it's frustrating. Um, and quite often that, that falls down to simple matters of confidence and competence and the people that who would be fantastic leaders and who are actually the glue in a certain team, just not being brave enough to take that step. Also not having leaders who are able to recognize them, encourage and promote and grow them and grow them on. So uh, you, you'll have probably been in that position at some point in your own life, I would suspect. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you said about the difference between potentially manager and leader. It, it can be, yes, sometimes they overlap, but the, there can be a difference. Uh, you can huge, be, yeah. Huge. Uh, just, and I'm going to chuck it out there, and I'm probably going to upset the apple cart, just because you went to Sandhurst and you held the rank of a, <laughs> uh, of officer. really mean you're a leader. It means you've led, but it doesn't mean you, at any point you were actually a leader. It means you were probably very good at managing, uh, at delegating, uh, etc. And you've had huge expectation and uh, responsibility on your shoulders. Agree. Still doesn't mean necessarily that you're, some of the best leaders I've ever seen have come from the ranks um, and have become LE officers who've gone through. So, uh, yeah, there you go. And just finally, you spoke about your experience of leaving the military and it not being as good as it could have been. Has that improved in subsequent years? Has that support for veterans improved? It's getting better all the time. Uh, I left right on the transition point where, look, listen, I had a recovery centre. I speak to many veterans from Bosnia, um, Iraq 1, um, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Northern Ireland. There was nothing. It was like you signed your paperwork, you handed it in, you're out the door the next day. And there was nothing. So um, there's an awful lot of people out there still crying out for that rest, headspace and respite. And for those people, again, because when you speak to them, and I've had these comments before where they'll tell me, listen, youngster, there's nothing you can't tell me about the field. I am the field. I fully get that you've lived in a hedgerow having to poop into space packets after you've eaten your food and leave no trace. And you know, I've done that stuff too. But that's not camping. That's not the joy of experiencing the outdoors. That is aggressive camping type two fun, we call it. It's, it's nothing nice about it. There's not being able to have a fire, light and noise discipline, etc. So when I think about how things have changed and I look at veterans today who are now coming on our course and engaging in this kind of stuff and learning nice new ways to set set their bivy up at head height, not 16 inches off the floor. And in helping in helping to do that, you're also helping to break some of the conditioning, which holds them prisoner of their own mind for years thereafter because they can only ever apply that model of I go camping, it just reminds me of this. How are you camping? So it's one of those. Um, but I think, yeah, we have the transition liaison service was the first thing the NHS provided. 
like a handover. We're now on Op Courage, which is doing far better uh, than the Transition Liaison Service, which quite quite frankly was like their first go at it, and in my eyes fell over. Okay. Uh, having experienced that firsthand, um, in my own humble experience, and uh, and I think that. A lot more practitioners are getting a lot more savvy. We're doing a lot more with our emergency services. We're recognising the diff- the similarities in the frontline workers. Uh, we're starting to create streamlined systems, which are far better. You've now got trauma-focused CBT. You've got lots of different things that are kind of working with for uh, the veteran in that, in that way. The nice guidelines have changed now. We're now not asking people who've had lots of visceral, visceral upfront trauma to jump into EMDR. Uh, so combat veterans is now, I, I, I believe at the time of filming this, it's now advised against, it's it's right. not advised to EMDR immediately with people that have just had that sort of experience. Um, and that's because you literally relive that stuff and then people go so far backwards. It can Doesn't then help. be, yeah, well, it doesn't. It doesn't. For me, some of it did work. Definitely, I I distinctly remember that first session, and I cried my eyes out for about an hour, saying I'm sorry, and all kinds of stuff came out of me, and it was just really weird. But, um, you know, there was a point also where I just felt I was just opening up the same wound again and again and again. It got to a point where I couldn't move on it. So, I definitely made progress, but I'm not saying it's it's not the answer. Like it's not the the one one. There's no magic wand to any of this stuff. Um, hence getting into the outdoors every single day, making it part of your daily patterns and behaviours, putting that poorly fish in the clean water is all part of of making a big overall, consi- on the consistency chart, making that big overall difference to your life. Yeah, hugely so. Nick, thank you so much for your time because I could have picked your brains for another 10 times this amount because there is a wealth of knowledge and inspiration there, which is why people should go and and read rewild your mind where can you find more information about yourself and what you do but also the book uh so you can find me on uh my website nick goldsmith um it's dog i think um you can find the woodland warrior program.org you can find hidden valley bushcraft.co.uk <laughs> instagram either as my name uh, although I got hacked and someone has left the account up, which is annoying. So it's officially Nick Goldsmith is one you're looking for with a blue tick. Um, Hidden Valley Bushcraft has its own Instagram page. There's Twitter, two pages on there. There is Facebook. We're still on Facebook. Yep. There. Just, <laughs> I don't know what's going on with Facebook at the moment. I can't get the thing to work half the time, but yeah, so there's that. And um there's a whole host of fantastic podcasts like this and material out there. And of course, if you want to pick up a copy of Rewild Your Mind, type that into Amazon. It should come up and get yourself a copy for Christmas. And it will be linked in the podcast description and also the article related to this podcast. Um, you've offered so much inspiration, advice, education in this podcast. Um, and again, I, I implore people to go and find out more from all of the channels that you just mentioned there. I started off this podcast by offering you a piece of advice from Isaac and now is your opportunity to leave a piece of advice for a guest coming onto the podcast in the near future. So I've written here my piece of paper (laughs) something which has become so, so prevalent to me, uh, especially in the last couple of years where I've been building assets, physically creating sites. So we now operate across three sites. Uh, There's Camp One with the off-grid cabin. Uh, that you might see in the social media. There is uh, Camp 2, which is up in the big high canopy forest on the edge of the Mendips. And then there's three is the small holding. I've literally, we've built a small holding. We have beehives. We provide honey to the local farm shop. We have goats, chickens, an enormous polycrub tunnel, a classroom with solar panels on the roof. All that's happened in the last two years. One job is 10. Anytime you set out to do, oh, I'll just do this one job today, right? Just fully be prepared for everything to go wrong, will go wrong, can go wrong. Uh, It'll all happen to you. You won't have the right size screws. You won't find the parts. Your batteries won't be charged. Something, some child will need picking up from school. One job is 10. So give yourself time. Time is our greatest commodity. And if there's anything I can pass on to anyone, it's, 
be careful who you spend your time with uh, and how you spend your time is very, very important. Um, so, yeah, one job is 10. One job is 10 and manage your time. There you go. I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that and understand that. And I look forward to passing that along. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of the Outside and Active podcast featuring my special guest, Nick Goldsmith. I hope that this episode and conversation helped you to rewild your mind. And if you want to find out more, then you can do so through the book and through Nick's website, which you can find links to in the description of this podcast. Please do go and check it out. And Nick, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking through your experiences and listening to your advice and opinions. I'll be back next week with another episode. But before I just jump off, I want to ask each of you a massive favour that will take literally 10, 20 seconds, uh, but will make a, a massive difference. If each of you could share this podcast or this episode even with someone who you think would enjoy it just as much as you, then it will make a massive, massive difference. And I will be very, very thankful. It just means that we can continue growing this outside and active community, which is continuing to grow. And I'm so thankful to have some amazing guests on to this podcast, such as Nick, to talk through their experiences and offer you something. I'll be back next week with another one of these amazing guests. But until that time, I've been Dominic Brown. Enjoy the outdoors. <laughs>